Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, everybody. Part two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, June 23rd, is still brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor, part two, also still in Ben's attic. (laughs) (laughs) Got a feeling we're going to be here for a while. Oh, yeah. We had a few hiccups there, but State Senator Robert Peters is with us. Joining us, it looks like, Robert, you're sitting in your living room? I am sitting in my living room. That's right. Uh, Uh, No, it's uh, it's actually my TV room slash second bedroom. Okay. All right. Let's... Let's get it right, Ben. Uh, I make it very clear for people. Details matter. I've been promoting this uh, conversation all day. Sort of saying, what direction should the Democratic Party go to? Which direction is the Democratic Party going to? When I say Democratic Party, I'm talking about you, the voters, because you get to decide. Uh, And I said, well, let's bring on Robert Peters, see what he has to say about this state senator from the Hyde Park area uh, on the south side of Chicago. Proud graduate of Mount Carmel High School. Did I have that correct? You are correct. Can you, you are. I, where did that come from? I do not know. That's correct. Uh, thank you, Robert Mueller. Uh, and uh, so there's a number of uh, races that are actually taking place today. Be really curious uh, to get uh, Robert Peters' thoughts on. Before we go there, State Senator Robert Peters, uh, any general thoughts? I mean, you are a state senator, so I should ask you just any general thoughts about what went down at the legislative session that just ended about them. It seems like 10 years ago, but it was a month ago, I want to say. Uh, any general thoughts about everything? Um, you know, I think we got a lot done. Um, we didn't have that much time. I think, you know, myself, State Rep. Deli Ramirez, uh, you know, Gazzardi, a few of us wanted to get some stuff done around housing. We weren't able to do so. So the hope is that we can come back during veto and get that done. Uh, but we also had such a limited amount of time. And, uh, you know, I, I will admit, I I like going to Springfield. I like doing that work. I like being on the floor. Um, I like getting into the nitty gritty of a bill. And so for three days, I got to do what, you know, what drives me to do this work. Uh, and hopefully, you know, we're able to go back and veto and do, you know, get some bigger things done around housing and around justice reform. Yes, I just want to remind everybody that Deli Ramirez, State Representative Deli Ramirez, was on the show about, oh, I don't know, I've lost track of time, Robert, but she uh, went, we went into detail on the renter's uh, bill and uh, how it went down to defeat and sort of the games that people play in Springfield and what you're up against when you're really pushing progressive legislation. It's going to get into what we're talking about uh, when we talk about the future of the Democratic Party because so many of the elements were at play there, you know, different factions within the Democratic Party and how progressives like yourself and Delia are always being advised by uh, the more mainstream types just to trim your sails a little bit, stop being so progressive, don't push too hard, don't rock the boat, as they said back in the song in the 70s before you were born, uh, and, you know, let's just get along, go along to get along, which is kind of the attitude that uh, progressives like yourself are facing uh, in the state house. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, when you have a triple crisis of a public health you know, a pandemic, um, you have an economic crisis and you have racism, especially through law enforcement and racism throughout. I don't know how you sort of can go along and get along when you have something that in modern history is just not comparable uh, with a president who has decided to do a passive version of herd immunity 
um, like this is a time for us to start dealing with the systemic issues in our community. Um, but, you know, people want to try to do half measures during a pandemic economic crisis and, you know, racism within law enforcement. Uh, good luck for, you know, telling that to the masses. Uh, that's my, that's my view. Have, have you actually gotten, uh, the type of advice that I just, I, I just put it out there, but has anyone ever told you, uh, Robert, you're pushing too f- hard, you're moving too fast, slow down, uh, this is how the system works. Have you ever had that actual advice from another st- uh, state senator or state rep uh, from Springfield? No, I mean, some people will say that. I think it's a little bit more passive than that in I, the Senate's a little different than the House, and I, I can't really speak to the House side, but it will be um, it will be more of like you got to negotiate, um, and I like negotiating, so I just think there's a different point from where you can negotiate from, and I think it's best not to negotiate with yourself. Um, you know, like Alex doesn't negotiate with themselves. You know, when they present a crazy Alex bill, so. Why would you negotiate with yourself? So, um, but I think people have gotten to know me. I, you know, I, I'm a, you know, I come from a deep organizing background. So I make it very clear to people who I am. I get very clear on who they are so we can build a relationship. And I think it's, it's more of the fact that people already expect me. The best way to put it is some people expect me to put some quote unquote crazy out there. Um, and so they don't even tell me to, slow down or chill out. It's really just an expectation. Um, and I don't take it. I'm not personally offended because what's that going to do for me for trying to push, push a piece of legislation to them? I, I'm, I might be crazy, but if we can work something out and get something done that is good for people, then let's get it done. Um, I don't give a Am I allowed to curse? Yeah, absolutely. It's a podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Kim Fox curse. I don't. I don't give a shit if some. Uh, yeah, I mean, I it's just I don't really give a shit if someone thinks my views are just out of the mainstream. Um, just tell me and talk to me and let's let's work on some shit. So. By the way, the word shit is now uh, written S H I T in the New York Times, but still in Chicago, our dailies feel compelled to write S and then dash dash. dash. I'm like. What could those dashes be? I'm always baffled, man. It's like crossword puzzles. How do I figure out what those dashes represent? Then I got to turn to the New York Times. Oh, that's what it means. All right, let's talk about some of these races because it gets in these issues uh, that we're facing uh, that that are on board today. They're primaries. Uh, as I speak, voters uh, in Kentucky. This is a fascinating one, Robert Peters. And people know this if you listen to the show uh, regularly, but if this is the first time you're dropping in, uh, Robert was the Illinois coordinator uh, for Bernie Sanders, some kind of title with the Bernie Sanders campaign. I, I probably I was a coach. I co-chair on the state. state the, I was a, yeah. I was the way. chair and a group of us was co-chair. It's okay. It's cool. okay. He was a big I'm shot. A, with I'm the a Bernie, Bernie pro as people yeah. say. Yeah. He's Bernie to the core. So uh, in many ways, the Bernie uh, Biden fight or the Bernie fight uh, within the democratic par- uh, pro- party uh, with the, the mainstreams is uh, at play in um, the state of Kentucky. Amy McGrath uh, is sort of the mainstream Democrat, and um, uh, she, I think she was in the Air Force, uh, and she's up against a, uh, a state rep named Charles Booker. And I got to tell you, Robert Peters, if you had asked me a month ago that whether Booker was even running, I probably would have failed the test. And I'm a junkie. I've been getting so many solicitations for Amy McGrath, Amy McGrath, Amy McGrath. I just assumed that uh, Amy McGrath was the nominee already to run against Mitch McConnell. And then about two weeks ago, all of a sudden I started seeing on Instagram Charles Booker promotions. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's a race going on here. So give us your general thoughts uh, on this contest. Yeah, so I heard of Booker because um, the Sunrise Movement I uh, had endorsed them a few like a few months ago. Uh, you know, everything feels like five years ago to be honest with you. But uh, there was this whole battle going on originally with Matt Jones, who's a Kentucky sports personality, 
versus Amy McGrath. Uh, Amy's propped up by a bunch of national donors who, in in my eyes, they don't actually even care about Billy winning. They just want to distract Mitch McConnell in a tough race so that they can go and battle in other areas throughout the country. So the propping up what they believe is this ideal candidate, not one picked by folks in Kentucky, so not a local person. Combined with that, as they were propping up Amy, Matt Jones, who's this Kentucky sports personality, was sort of thinking about running, and he's, you know, locally beloved. Um, and I think Amy McGrath's campaign got him fired from his radio program, which, again, was national folk propping up a candidate not really Kentucky-rooted and firing someone who is deeply blue Kentucky, you know, wildcat, beloved personality. So we already had this dynamic of local versus national folks deciding who should run against Mitch McConnell. And then uh, Booker, you know, he, he comes out of, I think, Louisville. He's, uh, I think he's been a one-term state rep. He's local. Um, Matt Jones do- doesn't run. Booker runs. And not only does he get support from a national organization that the lead of someone who acted on their own, as he did, um, but he's unique in the fact that usually when you talk about progressive left candidates, A, we're almost always painted as being like sent by some secret white anarchist crew um, or whatever bullshit people say, uh, so it's, it's to erase anybody who's black and left, uh, and so he's young, black, and left, and he has support across the political spectrum because he was able to build those relationships. He's made it clear that he's connected to Kentucky. He's, you know, I think his state, his slogan is from the hood to the holler, uh, which is an amazingly great Kentucky slogan. Um, and even though he has, I'm pretty sure like $37 million less money than Amy McGrath, because he's so rooted to Kentucky, he has a real serious shot at beating Amy and for local folks to tell national folks, don't tell us who's supposed to be our candidate. Um, and it, it gives me so much energy just to see this happening because it just goes to show like, I, a lot of national folks like want to create something and like create like a, you know, designer candidate, um, you know, that they can pull and they can, you know, make up and all that crap. And, uh, it turns out if you don't actually listen to the people on the ground, you're going to get yourself in trouble. And if you're not connected to and rooted to people on the ground, it's a trap. And Amy McGrath, it could turn out to be the most expensive primary loser I, I, I could, you know, maybe ever. Well, she hasn't lost yet, but uh, it may turn out that way. And let's just pause to think uh, before we move on, take a little deeper dive here, uh, Robert. Dems always forget that, this is particularly true in southern states, that the key to winning a Democratic primary in a southern state are black voters. Because when Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Bill back in 1965, whites... Voters in the South left the Democratic Party, and they've been in the Republican Party ever since. So if you're in a Democratic primary in the South, chances are at least 50% around that number of the participants will be black people. So just assume (laughs) that all these black voters in Kentucky are just going to go along with what these donors consider an ideal candidate is quite a presumption. Now, I know that that may have been the attitude that a lot of uh, Democratic chieftains had, follow me on this, because it's effectively how Joe Biden was nominated. Black voters in the South supported Joe Biden, in South Carolina in particular, cut Bernie at the knees, and it was all downhill ever since for Bernie and uphill or whatever for Joey B. So I guess this, well, it worked for Biden, it's going to work for Amy McGrath, but I guess the black vote is not a monolith. Is that what we're learning, Robert? Yes, and, it, it, you know, it's so funny, too, about Booker is that he got, um, 
I think her name's Allison Lundgren. Uh, Allison, she she ran for four against Mitch McConnell in 2014. Uh, she's you know got a lot of national attention. Uh, she's a white you know woman. Um, but I think what Booker's done is also transitioned to be like it's not just he's just Louisville. The hood to the holler line. It's just he's making a statement that I am Kentucky. I mean, it's like the pivot that is just so good. And it's, it's so hilarious to me. And, and back to Biden was so, you know, as a Bernie person and a black Bernie supporter, um, having to hear over and over about, oh, well, Biden and the you know black vote and the black vote. Well, let's see who he picks for vice president. And let's see what his policies do, you know, especially with COVID, the economic crisis. And when it comes to racism and law enforcement, hiding, hi- highlighting, how bad it is when it comes to systemic racism and classism. I would love to see the person who decided to make that a case during their primary uh, stick to that in their general election, especially, you know, when they're up by like 11 points on Donald Trump. He has a lot of space to give to make sure he gives some proposals that I think will be really good for working class black folks, whether it's the South side of Chicago or the Southern United States. Um, But, yeah, I digress. So. What, what impact do you think uh, the murder of George Floyd and uh, the protests have had on the Booker's campaign? I think um, one of the key moments in that race um, is, I think it was a, a debate or an interview, uh, and Amy McGrath was asked if she had participated in any of the protests. And she stalled on giving an answer. It was something like, I was with my family, but even then, the answer clearly was just was BSing at that moment. And there was this contrast between her, that answer she was giving, and Booker being everywhere in the state, out on the street, standing in solidarity with folks as they were protesting. And he created this contrast of, um, not only did Amy McGrath have a mess up where she said she is going to be better towards Trump than McConnell. I don't know. Some weird she's with Trump line. And then this situation, and then immediately her team, clearly I'm sure like a vast group of consultants freaked out, created an ad. And what is interesting is in Kentucky, it's not George Floyd, it's Breonna Taylor, where, where Booker has made, statement after statement uh, around the murder of Breonna Taylor while Amy McGrath ha- doesn't ask um, trying to appeal to uh, primary voters and doesn't mention Breonna Taylor's name in Kentucky where Breonna Taylor was murdered. So it just goes to show that either she was afraid to say Breonna Taylor's name in an ad or she was told not to have Breonna Taylor, Taylor's name in the ad or even worse, they didn't even know. Yeah. No, I, uh, this is a, an age-old conflict in the Democratic Party. It's at least 20 years. I remember back in 2006, 2006 uh, David Sirota, who was a Bernie a press aide, now is, uh, has his own website, uh, and was a young activist at the time, uh, and he was on one side of the debate, and your dear friend Rahm Emanuel uh, who was the head of the, I'm just teasing, he's not really his friend. Uh, by the way, before I go any further, I urge everyone to, when you're done listening to this conversation, go check the first interview I ever did with uh, Robert. I think it's a classic, uh, and it was just, it was your introduction. You opened up your whole life, your story, your background. Uh, I urge everybody, we're not going to revisit it at all, but I just, it was one of my favorite interviews. I urge everybody, when you're done with this one, just you can find it. It's easy enough. Uh, just search the index. Robert Peters. It was about a year ago. But anyway, um, Rahm Emanuel, his attitude was you, you find military vets uh, who have no anything resembling a leftist ideology. You run away from any issue that black people would want and worry about uh, so that you just are expecting blacks to vote for you without offering them anything in the way of substance. Uh, and then you hope to peel off just enough white people to win 
uh, the election. That was the Rahm Emanuel uh, approach, and the David Sirota approach was no. You you got to give you got to give people real, legitimate reasons for voting for you on policy matters. And that's what dif- differentiates Democrats from Republicans. You can't build a party if you run away from the values of the party. And I think what you just said about Amy McGrath's advisors telling her, you know, don't talk about uh, Brianna Taylor. You know what I mean? Don't talk about that. It's just like the definition of stupid Democratic strategies in my humble opinion what's your thoughts yeah so it's so funny there's a book um that ryan Grimm wrote called we got people i think it's called we got people you should check it out uh, because the best way to describe it as it's a takedown of sort of rom's views on politics i mean it just goes race by race through that type of thinking and i mean look there was a moment, like we have to acknowledge, we're specific, really in the 90s more than any, anything. So the third way political thinking won you from races. Like, it, it was successful because the left had sort of abandoned electoralism. Uh, the right was just really on, you know, you know, this sort of Newt Gingrich contract for America was just sort of starting on its rise. Um, you know, Grover Norquest and the tax pledge was just starting on its rise. There was a period where third wayism actually could work. Um, and what I would say is that, you know, there was this, sort of this post-Cold War period where that could kind of exist. And during that period of sort of neoliberal chaos, but that is that's dead. I mean, I think like it is, I mean, I won't say dead. It is dying. It is a dying way of thinking. We are in an increasingly polarized political environment. Politics is supposed to be that way. It is. It, there is. There are sides that you have to choose. Uh, and for those who don't want to be stuck in that, that sucks for you. Uh, but in, in the reality is that that is more and more of a thing in politics, and it was a thing in American politics, especially up until the cold war. I mean, that was literally a thing. I mean, we went, we had a civil war in this country because you had to choose a side. And even within the civil war, there were internal fights, you know, in the South and in the North, because you had to choose a side. You know, if we go back to the founding of this country, people were saying you have to choose a side. This idea that politics was some sort of, classy, you know, bullshit, wine-driven, higher argument is ignoring how much there was, there were fights that, you know, at some point actually cost people their lives because you have to choose a side. And we are back to that because the Cold War is dead. And I don't give a shit how many people try to drag us into new Cold Wars with Russia and China so that they can live with their crappy politics. The reality is there is a left and there is a right, and it, it's increasingly polarizing, and people are increasingly angry. And we we got it. One part is we got you got to choose a side, and the other one is we got to organize people around your side in order for us to have victories and to win. Um, so yes, I, I I think anybody who thinks they can live in this meandering center, uh, if you look at any politician who tries to live in the center, you're looking at some of the most miserable looking people that exist. I mean, anybody, you know, and I, I don't often make critiques of the mayor, but her New York Times interview, she talked about on the right, uh, she gets yelled at on the left, she gets yelled at so she must be doing something right. And if I had to say, looking at how her demeanor is, it doesn't seem like it's, she feels very satisfied with her decision making and how things are going. And Politics is not about us being saviors or martyrs or, or somewhat on the cross to, you know, on, on, for a cause. If you really want to feel like you're doing something that feels good in the sense that it's righteous and, and it's the right thing, uh, hanging around in the center in this day and age is just going to make it harder and harder for you to do your job. All right. I, I just have to say this. You raised the mayor. I don't want to get you in trouble with Mayor Lori Lightfoot. 
Uh, but the notion that somehow or other criticism from the left, let's just throw out the Chicago Teachers Union, for instance, is the equivalent of criticism from the right, which let's just throw out the new president of the Fraternal Order Police. Mm -hmm. To to make that suggestion is so disrespectful to the Chicago Teachers Union and to the teachers. I, I just... I just had to say that. Okay, I'm not, that's me speaking. It's not Robert Peters speaking. I'm just finding. I did not see this interview. It's, I missed it. Did it just hit online? Is that it? Is it typical? It's a New York Times interview. Okay, yeah. I don't know when it appeared, uh, but that's a standard refrain. I found myself saying that many times, Robert. Oh, I get letters bashing me from lefties. I get letters bashing me from righties. I must be do something right. That's a standard refrain. But it, like when I look at critics, <laughs> you get what I'm saying. I'm like, I would not. I do equate the Chicago Teachers Union with the new guy who's in charge of fraternal order police. That guy's a MAGA hat wearer, you know. So, are you saying lefties are the same as Trump supporters? I think that there is a. And I'm not going to, you know, singularly talk about the mayor here, but I think there are a lot of politicians who um, somehow equate fascists as being the same thing as being not even a socialist. If you're just left, um, you're somehow as bad as a fascist. And I'm, I just, it, that upsets me so much and it blows my mind. Uh, but Hey, if you want to try to live in that space, um, well, that's going to be, there's a group organizing on the left and we're getting larger and larger, uh, older and bolder, and, you know, I think we're learning from, uh, you know, in this new space of electoralism. Uh, and I, I just think in a larger context of this country, um, that's why there's a Booker. Even if Booker doesn't win, I, like the thing that gets me is like, you run to win. But when a, a national org funnel, you know, helps organize $40 million to a candidate, which is what Amy McGrath raised, the fact that they need to be in complete panic mode in Kentucky means that now there's space in Kentucky for a progressive left multiracial movement in a place that so many Northerners laugh at, the South, in Kentucky. That is something to build on. That is something that is awesome and that is beautiful. All right, now let's talk about that. Uh, let's say uh, Charles Booker is victorious today, defeats Amy McGrath. Let's just work with that as assumption. Uh, he would be running against Mitch McConnell, the most powerful uh, senator in the, the Republican Party has, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, the man chiefly responsible for any legislation that Donald Trump wants advanced, uh, the man responsible for uh, Neil Gorsuch's position on the Supreme Court because he would not I give Merrick yeah. Garland uh, a hearing when Barack Obama nominated him. So he's perhaps uh, the most, uh, if you're a Democrat, evil uh, representation of the Republican Party you have next to Donald John Trump. So here you would have Charles Booker up against Mitch McConnell in uh, a Charles Booker, a black man, uh, and a a Bernie Sanders Democrat uh, up against Mitch McConnell in a state that I believe Donald John Trump won with over 60% of the vote. I forget what it was uh, in 2016. Uh, can you see Charles Booker winning in any way? I would say that I would see both him and with Amy McGrath, I would say when you take it on Mitch McConnell, who, you know, is the reason why he's so powerful. It's, it's a real uphill fight. What I would say though, is there is, and look, I think a lot of people give Beto or work a lot of shit. They do um, first politics, and but for the state of Texas, Beto was energetic against Ted Cruz, um, and he got extremely close. And I think Booker has the ability to be that energetic in the way that Beto is, you know, youthful, uh, you know, able to say that he's representing all of Kentucky in this unique manner at. I think could surprise Sarah Mitch McConnell 
and I, I again I think it's very similar to like Beto in in twenty eighteen. There's just some similarity there. I don't see that with Amy, Amy McGrath. They feel like it's someone who gets a lot of money, puts a lot of money on TV, um, you know, tries to do, you know, targeted direct mail, and that's all great. But in terms of like, do you see how she'll relate to people and the human to human level throughout the state of Kentucky that the entire nation is, you know, you know, grabbing onto and feeling inspired? No, I think that's something that you will actually need if you want to see Mitch McConnell is energy and excitement and hope. And Booker at least has hope. And so that people who never thought they could do something like beat Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, people in Kentucky will know that they will fight every day for someone they have hope for. Well, and if you're going to be an underdog, he's going to be outspent. You need hope. Yeah, uh, that would be fueling him. And it'd be interesting if he does win, will the money pour in for him the way it's poured in for Amy McGrath? Uh, And by the way, I think he will get a lot of money if he wins. I'll say this because I know so many Democrats who despise Mitch McConnell. They will just send the money to Booker. And the, the money that Amy McGrath received, I'm telling you right now, Robert, is not because people loved Amy McGrath. It was... She very, I got to give her credit, uh, cleverly positioned herself as the lone opposition to uh, Mitch McConnell. And Democrats who hate Mitch McConnell said, let's go. And like you said, if nothing else, it'll distract him uh, from the other races, like uh, Susan Collins in Maine uh, or the the senatorial race in uh, Arizona. And he'll have to concentrate on his own backyard. So, uh, yeah, let's, I'm sure uh, Charles Booker will get... um, uh, money too if he wins. All right, I'm going to make you make a prediction. What the heck? It doesn't matter anyway. If you were in Vegas, just straight up bet in Vegas. And uh, it's not about ideology, not about who you want to win. Who do you think, uh, who would you put your money on? Who do you think is going to win, uh, Booker or McGrath? Uh, I First of all, I hate doing these. It always goes bad. Uh, and it's, I feel like I'm bad luck when I make this, but I think Booker beats McGrath 51-49. Uh, All right, I'll put it down. Okay. Close. All right, I'm writing this down. Uh, I, I, I'm i I'm with you. By the way, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to tell you something I tell uh, all Bulls fans. Anything you say about this race in terms of, like, who do you predict will win has no outcome whatsoever on the race. <laughs> it will not affect it in any way. So if I say right now I'm- the Chicago Bulls will win the championship next year, I am not jinxing them. Uh, anyway, I'm with you. I think Booker's going to win this race. So I'm writing this down. And uh, since we both bet the same thing, we'll just go out to eat and we'll both claim victory uh, one way or the other. Uh, all right, yeah. let, let's let's move on to um, New York. There's a primary in New York, uh, very similar uh, themes. Uh, AOC is running uh, for re-election. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez against uh, Michelle Caruso and uh, Cabrera, a former uh, CNBC correspondent. Many of the same themes uh, as in Kentucky in terms of a mainstream versus uh, a Bernie Democrat. But in this case, of course, AOC is the incumbent. So your thoughts on this race? Yeah, I mean, I haven't thought too much about it. I mean, there's been the anxiety, like, could she, you know, lose? Um, I don't think she's going to lose. I think that um, her race is just like petty politics uh, coming from a bunch of rich Wall Street types. Um, I think not only is she, I think, going to win, she did a video, her ad video last week, and she did it again, you know, put it out there again uh, today, is one of the best videos in explaining the current situation we're in, in terms of the crisis, transitioning that from that pain of the crisis to the hope of, you know, sort of the broader collective and then the action that we can take. And it's like a minute and a half video, 90 seconds, but it is an amazing diagnosis of the crisis that we're in. And I think that that her being in a race and then producing a video like this that is that powerful will just inspire even more people across the country um, 
around, you know, that kind of politics. And uh, so they challenged her and it's only going to, it only increases her ability to influence, uh, you know, the political arena, the public arena. So I, I think, I think she's going to win. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to, you know, say anything for landslide, but I, I think she, she definitely wins. Um, and yeah, I just think that she's going to keep getting this. I'm sure there's going to be some games around redistricting, uh, is something that she's going to have to face. Um, cause that's like how the world works. Um, and so I'm sure she's going to get thrown into something. Um, I'm not sure where Jamal Bowman's district is, but I, it seems like if he were to win, cause I think he's Bronx and Westchester, if I'm correct, if that's the area, which is just next to her district, which is Bronx and, uh, Queens. I mean, if I was thinking about old fashioned machine politics and, you know, Bowman wins, then you find a way to throw them into one district is, I think the great, like the bigger risk that could happen for both of them. All right. Now, uh, just you, you jumped ahead of us, but uh, since you went there, I'll just say Jamal Bowman uh, is challenging uh, incumbent Elliot Engel. Uh, that's on the race also today. And that is, uh, in some ways, uh, it's similar to the race uh, Alexander Ocasio Cortez had in 2018 when she beat Joe Crowley, a long time incumbent. The difference here is that Eng- Elliot Engel is taking the challenge a little more seriously, having learned the lesson from Crowley, and is fighting back a lot more, uh, uh, you know, deter- with more determination than Crowley. That guy, that was one of the worst run campaigns I think I've ever seen. And I said that in retrospect because I wasn't following it in real time. But, oh, my mm-hmm. God. He, like, everything that he was supposed that he could have done wrong, he did wrong. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, but let's just stay with you. Uh, that point you raised, I hadn't thought about that redistricting redistricting, of course, takes place every 10 years and it's done as a requirement because you want to uh, reshape the boundaries so that there's roughly the same number of people in each boundary. It's done by, uh, in most States, the, uh, the party with power. Uh, so in the state of New York, it would be the Democrats doing it. So if there's a redistricting that undercuts AOC, it'll be uh, one more, just to our theme, one more uh, w- within the Democratic Party fight, power struggle, uh, to undercut the uh, the Bernie Sanders wing, for lack of a better word, the lefty wing of the Democratic Party. And at some point, even Dems have to realize that they're hurting their chance to keep waging war. I mean, just strategically long-term, Robert, it makes no sense. It'd be like if Michael Madigan tried to go after you because, and Delia, because you were represented leftist uh, views on rent control. I don't see that happening in the state of Illinois. Now, maybe I'm naive, but Madigan, I'm speaking of Madigan, uh, in the house generally lets his lefties be their their old lefty cell he won't he won't let their legislation pass but he doesn't once they're in they're in you know what i mean once they're part of his caucus they're part of his caucus uh i can't think well of it. i mean it, go ahead i think just member management um from both madigan or Harmon. i mean the idea is if you screw over your own member uh you undermine your leadership um it's not like what happened with Fioretti when the second ward morphed uh, to the north side like that. I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing. Is I've, seen, you've, I've, I've personally seen this because of what happened to the second ward uh, in redistricting. And so uh, that's something where if you are, you know, and I'm not, first of all, let me just make it very clear on the air. Uh, I do not like Bob Fioretti. If he's listening to this, I want you to know I do not like you. There. Um, but, and, and Bob Fioretti is not AOC. And AOC is not Bob Fioretti. She is a, a magnetic politician who has helped change our political arena. Uh, so when I make this comparison in the fact that she is disliked by so many folks who come from the establishment in a similar vein, as Bob Fioretti was when he was an alderman. Uh, and therefore, that's always a risk. And I think that when you are, um, 
you know, I think this is something where you see this more in the city of Chicago than you do in the state, uh, in Illinois. So it's more of, I think, a city thing. But I, you know, New York operates its politics differently than, uh, you know, than Illinois. And in New York, you know, you, at one point you had a caucus that almost always, that was a Democratic caucus that always voted with the Republicans. I think they call it the IDC. Um, so it, it's machine politics seems to be more at the state, you know, Albany level um, in that kind of way than you then. And so it's similar to some things that you see in Chicago at the state level. I don't know New York politics enough to know if that's true at the city level, but they have extreme partisan. I mean, they had Republican mayors before, so I don't think they have that same type of politics. So oh, uh, at the city council level, the, uh, no, when you as soon as you said Fioretti, I was all about to say that's a Chicago thing, which is special. And then you you actually said what I was going to say, so no no sense in repeating it. Uh, but uh, yeah, Fioretti, they iced them out. They moved a, a district that had traditionally for years been a South Side district. They turned it into this bizarre configuration on the North Side, and I think it was twofold, and this is so Chicago. One was to cut Fioretti off at the knees because nobody liked the guy. It was like a cafeteria spat between different factions in junior high, and they didn't like him anymore. Uh, and then the other reason is to put – they wanted to put all the, uh, the sites uh, – that were along the Chicago River in that old industrial area on the north side into one district that so they could control the development and fork over TIF dollars uh, to develop. We saw that happen in Lincoln Yards, and you needed a, a you needed an alderman who would just go along and say what you will about Fioretti. He, he was kind of a maverick. You never knew which way he was going to go, so they didn't know if they could control yeah. him uh, on those issues. So I think those are twofold reason. Very Chicago. They cut him off at the knees, and then convinced the aldermen in the city of Chicago to, to uh, je- divert $1.3 billion to Lincoln Yards, one of the dumbest things the aldermen have done in a long time. So I agree with you. i just saying that uh, if, if the mainstream of the Democratic Party, let's say uh, Jamal Bowen defeats Elliot Engel. I'm not sure that's going to happen. Let's say it does happen. And so that he and uh, AOC are Congress uh, man and woman uh, with districts right next to each other. To put two of your brightest, youngest stars in the same district so they have to fight for survival would be one of the dumbest things. But Democrats are always doing dumb things, Robert. But that would be one of the dumbest things I could think of. Yeah, I mean, um, I think this is a generational thing as much as anything. I think, um, and I don't mean that to be like sort of ageist, in, in just that there is a generational politics that exists here. Um, and, you know, maybe that's shifting a little bit. Uh, but it does, I mean, like, I, I have this weird thing where I, I sort of teeter between really big hope for the future that we're going to build something. I, you know, I sort of say, like, we're either going to have you know, these universal systems of care and democracy, or we're really going to just spiral into authoritarianism even more. There's really not, a, I don't feel a strong sense of a middle ground. And to give an example of that is just, let's not even talk about uh, the you know, Black Lives Matter protests, the defund the police protests. Let's not just talk about the fact that we're in the early stages of an economic recession maybe a depression. Let's just look at how COVID's gone. You want to see what authoritarian like brutality looks like and how it can be done in a quiet manner is with COVID. I mean, I think, you know, we've lost 6,000 plus lives in Illinois alone due to COVID. Um, and I believe that I, I'll double check, but I believe those are the numbers. Um, and we be, it almost has become like this is normal to us. Like that, that's okay. Florida is, I think, over 100,000 cases uh, in Florida. Arizona is just absolutely brutal. Texas, California never, California was doing pretty well early on. 
and it's been just getting beat. Um, and I think Gavin Newsom's trying his best, but it's just getting beat. And there's a sort of risk of a quiet acceptance that mass death is okay. And that's the thing that people come to accept because, you know, specifically at the national level, but also with some of these governors, not JB here, some of these other governors, to let this be normalized is frightening and scary. Um, and that after a lot of people let this be normalized, but that a lot of decisions are made to try to save an industry um, without the right protections for the people who have to work in that industry being normalized. I mean, that's it's almost the point where it's psychopathic. That's a risk. And so we have a choice to make. Um, you know, one is this harsh brutality or we have these universal democratic systems, uh, you know, of care. Uh, and, you know, this moment where I have that hope that we get a Booker and we get a Bowman and AOC. Um, and then there's the other thing of like, you know, maybe we get Amy McGrath who says she's going to be better towards Trump than Mitch McConnell, you know? I will, in a bizarre way, offer you some hope from what went down this weekend in Tulsa. Uh, one of my mini obsessions at the moment, Robert, you know, I get in these obsessions. So Donald Trump had announced that he was going to have his great comeback in Tulsa. He was going to deliver a speech, uh, and it was the, the auditorium was going to be packed. There was going to be such an overflow crowd that to, to handle all the demand, he would have a second venue where, uh, where they would be watching on a big screen, and he would come and say hello to the people in the second venue. And even then, there'd be like 900,000 to a million people who wanted to go that couldn't go and would have to watch on TV at their homes, but he he would have more rallies so that they could get a chance to go. This is how Donald Trump was talking. This is the kind of typical Donald Trump trash talk that he was doing. And all of a sudden, <laughs> we show up on Saturday, and we have 6,200 people in a 19,000-seat arena, and there's no demand, obviously, for an overflow audience, so they have to cancel that part. Nobody... There are many explanations for it, but I think Donald Trump shot himself in the foot when he sent out those waivers. If you were going to come into that auditorium, his campaign demanded that you sign a waiver releasing them of any responsibility if you catch COVID. Now, I, I have not, never been one to say MAGA Nation is that intelligent, but MAGA Nation was smart enough to figure out, Robert, there may be something in this COVID thing if old Donnie wants me to sign this waiver. And they, he scared off uh, many of his, uh, his, his fans, if you want to call them that, his supporters. I believe that was a, uh, the part of it. And so when I look at that, I'm going, the Republicans have made a um, political decision around COVID, to your point, on the basis that it only affects people in cities, black people in particular. It doesn't affect them. And so they open up the state. And now Republicans are coming to the realization that the virus doesn't share their biases. It goes after anybody. And Republicans can get it too. And that, I don't know if they'll accept deaths of... MAGA hat people. Do you follow what I'm saying? I don't understand. I don't know if the Republican Party will be so tolerant if it's not black people uh, who are dying or um, if it's not nurses and doctors in big cities who are facing these horrific uh, challenges. What's your thoughts? Yeah. So on the, I, you know, I want to give a shout out to TikTok teens and uh, K-pop fans. Uh, I think the K-pop fan BTS uh, for also playing a role in uh, ruining Donald Trump's night. Uh, that dude's ego just getting dented. Uh, I will say was hilarious. Like you just got to admit it's hilarious um, because he's so you just got a huge ego into being an empty arena. It's that I just can't stop laughing at this idiot. <laughs> He must, have, he must have gotten the update that they were like, well, sir, uh, before you go out there, you should just know. And then they, were, they should have been like, 
and it was Chinese spies because we're racist. And uh, yeah, that's what you should just know. And then he has to walk out there and, you know, convince himself, uh, you know, that this is because of some secret spy, you know, crazy anarchist slash DCP thing. And I just think that's just hilarious. Uh, and also amazingly sad that we have Donald Trump as president. But um, uh, I think the thing that gets me is uh, around COVID is that early on when we did not have the numbers around, you know, sort of who was impacted by race, it was like a whole freak out. And then it became a thing that only black people or only Latinx folks or if you're in a congregated facility are going to have to deal with. Um, And it created just another sort of, what I would say, big city bias when it came to policy. You know, the state rep, Al- Alan Skillicorn, uh, up in Crystal Lake, he says crazy racist stuff, and uh, he went to the, you know, Trump, you know, rally and um, didn't wear a mask. Um, I think he might have said a line that it's really diverse. There's young and old people. I thought that, when you're, when you're a Trump person, you know, like that diversity of young and old is all I guess you'd have here. Um, but the thing is that there are those who are more likely to be impacted by this virus due to things that have systemically existed before the virus. But the virus itself will still attack your body. Um, and so, and it may not be you who gets sick, but your cousin who bags groceries at the grocery store. When you and your friends don't walk into that grocery store with a mask on, you refuse to wear a mask. You may survive that. But think about the person who works there wearing a mask. Maybe it's your cousin or some other or a friend's kid who's working that job because they have to do so. And I think that a lot of these folks who were racist and classist, who thought this wasn't going to impact them, are just getting, they either are or about to be hit with a real serious it's going to hit them real hard because they're going to realize like joey's kid that you know they decided to start back up tackle football practice uh and your kid all of a sudden who you thought was immune just so happens to have lung problems and then the hospital you're you're going to just so happens to be at capacity and you know it 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 sucks i think it it does it, it sucks because there's some folks who just were serious assholes and racist and classist about it. And then there are some folks who didn't have a choice and they're going to get hit hard again. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it's the pandemic. I mean, I look at things like South Korea uh, or Taiwan or Germany mm-hmm. or Italy. Everyone kept, remember how many like racist people would be like, let's just talk about Italy all the time when it comes to COVID Florida in one day, I think, had more cases, I think it was a couple of days ago, had more cases than Italy had in like a month. And if Italy got anything near a, a level of a breakout of like 20 or 30, it'd be on shutdown in that town. And uh, it just, again, we're just doing this herd immunity that even folks in Sweden, which was the supposed model for so many folks in the Trump administration, even folks in Sweden were like, huh, maybe this doesn't work. Uh, and they've become humbled about it. Uh, it's just it's embarrassing and it's just brutal. And, you know, there's this whole thing of like, well, don't worry about it. It's summer, it's not winter, so this wouldn't be so bad. Um, except the way that it works is if, you know, right now in the global south, so Brazil is having really, really bad outbreaks. I think Houston at this point, is equivalent to Brazil and how bad their outbreak outbreak is. If we if people are moving around, you just see these outbreaks happen in different areas depending on different parts of the world. And with the United States, you know, it'll be folks who might be coming from Brazil and they'll come to the United States and we're just gonna be playing this game back and forth because we're treating this you know, sort of laissez faire approach to this pandemic and it's 
you know, I think Dr. Fauci said that um, we never really got out of our first first wave. We're still in the first wave. It's not a second wave. Um, so, you know, I just think, okay, when we get to the fall and the winter, how bad is it is it going to be? So, yeah. I, obviously, I'm giving people a lot of hope. I, I hope people know that. I think I don't want to be a downer uh, so much. Um, I think it's a little bit of a downer. I think when we look at these elections uh, and we look at people who are on the street and organizing and making demands and making people in power uncomfortable, we are not looking at people who are just being selfish, but seeing, you know, a self-interest in each other is something to have hope in. And to see what people are protesting and they put on a mask, they make that a, a thing. If you're coming out a mask, hand sanitizer, making sure people get water. I mean, I've been through a few of these. There's a sense of collective responsibility that gives me hope. Um, and if you compare that to the people who go to restaurants and they sit outside with no mask uh, and they're eating, you know, some nice, you know, cage-free organic egg thing, uh, and you see the contrast between the two, you know, I, I think we have an opportunity that there's been more people who are organizing these streets responsibly than there have been people who decide to go to the lakefront without a mask to think that they are A-OK, immune, uh, and I think that's the hope. I, uh, that's a nice uh, spot to end this uh, on, although I do I want to say it'd be, maybe the next time we have the conversation we could talk about uh, Donald Trump's decision, very Tulsa-like. You mentioned Florida. I don't know if you follow this, uh, Robert, but he was so frustrated with the Democratic governor of North Carolina and the insistence that uh, North Carolina made uh, regarding social distancing protocol at the Republican convention that he announced he was moving the, uh, the location of his speech to Jacksonville, Florida, the very state that you just alluded to with the high uh, outbreak, because Ron DeSantis, the Republican governor, just such a flunky to Donald Trump, would do everything Donald Trump wants. And so now they think they're going to pack an arena uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, with the heart and soul of their party. And I hate to use the word heart or soul in relation to anybody who's for Trump, but the true believers of their party, they're going to put them at risk in that Petri dish. I just, he couldn't fill up the 19,000 seat arena in Tulsa. I don't even think the Republicans are going to go to Jacksonville for that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the thing that gets me so much is that Ron DeSantis reminds me of Joe Bluth from Arrested Development. I don't know if you ever watched <laughs> He yeah. it looks like the dumbest doofus. <laughs> I like he just. I every time I look at him, I'm like, it's like <laughs> this person is a governor. I, I mean, and there was so much crap that happened that you know allowed him to become governor, and so we have to acknowledge that. But it's just looking at him, being like, he looks like somebody who, like, just. He's convinced. He's, he, I, I don't even know how to. He's like that person at the bar who is just a little, you know, little creepy, yelling at his bro friend about an obscure sports thing, and he's a governor of Florida, and he 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 just looks like he gets really mad if you get too close to his suit. Uh, and he is, yeah, he is someone who's definitely going to run for president and just bomb so badly. I think he. Him and Tom Cotton are going to be two people who are going to run, and they're going to be like, you know, you've got like the Tom Cotton's like the the the, the quote unquote smart one who's crazy and absolutely ridiculous. He's going to be extremely arrogant. He's going to be like, I'm next, and then you're going to have Ron DeSantis run, who's definitely going to pull like a Rick Perry and get asked the question and just give that frozen look on stage and just say, I've made a huge mistake. Uh, I mean, that's the Republican Party, you know, in, in just by two examples right there. So, 
Yeah, and uh, listen, I got enough to worry about with my beloved Democratic Party. I don't have enough time and to worry about what the Republicans up to, except I just want them to lose. Uh, Robert Peters, state senator, it's always a blast talking to you. Any before we let you go, anything you want to tell people, uh, anything you want to promote or plug or just instruct people about any meetings, virtual or otherwise, anything? Um, I don't really have too much. Um, let's just uh, move away from policing and uh, you know let's rebuild our communities and win some real safety and uh, yeah, that's what I've got. <laughs> so thank you, Ben. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, you know? It's always a blast. State Senator Robert Peters, I can't remember. I've lost track of many times he's been on the show. But uh, when you're done with this one, go check out the first one. It's a classic. Take care, Robert. Stay safe, all right? Definitely. Thank you. That's Robert Peters. Take care, everyone.